With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Heavy metal, the way it was meant to be.
All right, some bomb burning to kick off today's show. That was Deuce. That was the precursor to Tension. And I'm sorry to say that I still haven't picked up that Tension documentary. I've been meaning to get it. I just haven't. It. It's a really great documentary on the whole career of Tension, going back to the Deuce days, uh, called 25 Years in the Underground. I definitely have to pick it up. And uh, that's the song, Bomb Burner. That comes off of the 7-inch, the I think, back in the day. They actually put out a record in uh, 97, uh, some record company did anyway, called Deuce. But I think it was a combination of the earlier demos and that I'm Safe single from 1981. And, you know, that band featured Marty Freeman on guitar. And we've had Tom Gaddis on the show. He's a great guy. He has Deuce up and running again today. We also had Billy Giddens on not long ago. And Billy's got his other band, Alloy 20, which is an amazing outfit themselves. So there you go. That's how we kick off our Mother's Day show. And I want to wish all the mothers out there and everybody's mother or wife or sister a very happy Mother's Day. Today's show is brand new. We're just not live tonight because I am celebrating the day with my wife and my mother and my sister and the rest of the women in my family. But we'll be back live next Sunday. But enjoy today's show. Like I said, it's brand new. I had a couple of interviews this week that I pre-recorded, so I figured what better time to get them on since we don't have any live guests, and we got a great one for you today. Rachel Bowen from Skid Row is on today's show, as well as Richie Weiss from the band Dust, and that been also featured Marky Ramone under a different name back then, Marky Bell, and they were really one of the first American heavy metal bands back in the 60s. A lot of people credit Blue Chair, but you know I have to say Dust was right up there with those guys. And it was a real pleasure talking to uh, Richie before. A lot of people might remember Richie from our, uh, producing the first two Kiss records. And he's been involved in the music industry for a long time, and we speak about all that. And we'll get that on a little later on in the show. But let me see what I can do for you right now. We're going to get as much music on as we can. Uh, most of the news that I can talk about might be a couple of days old or dated already, because like I said, we're pre-recording this a day or two before the show. So uh, we'll talk about some stuff going on. And Kenny will call on later to give us our concert calendar update for the week. How about we do some merciful fate with Satan's fall?
damn, 11 and a half minutes of merciful fate. And every time I play Merciful Fate, I always say the same thing. I wish that they would get the original lineup back together. I mean, I don't even want a new record. Just get the five of you back together. Go out and do a massive world tour. I would love to see the original members together while they're still alive and they can still play together. It's not like there's any best films between the group. They're all still friendly today. Let's do it. I mean, of course, I would love a new album also, but then a part of me says... If it comes out and it doesn't sound like those first three records, I'm going to be disappointed. So I'd rather not have any music and just a tour. So I know King is healthy right now. He's been doing some festivals. And I know he's probably going to get ready to go out and do a King Diamond tour, I'm assuming, sometime this year, maybe next. And I would love to have him on the show. I mean, we've pretty much had everybody I could think of on this program. King Diamond is the one guy I'm waiting to. After we have him on, I guess we can go off the air. I know there's a lot of people saying, let's get him on the show now. where <laughs> he can end it. But he's definitely one of the guys I want to talk to. All right, let me see. In a little bit, I'll get that interview on with Rachel Bowen from Skid Row. Let's do one or two more tunes in the meantime. Let's get on some crack draw, Galley Without Aim. Yeah. 
Okay, that was M80 with Frying Pan and Into the Fire. That band featured Don Costa on bass. Uh, Don was in Wasp for a little bit, and then, you know, I think he, the most famous thing he did was playing with Ozzy for a very short period of time. I believe it was 1983 that he played with Ozzy uh, for a little bit. Don used to put the cheese grater on the back of the bass and cheese grater's stomach as he was playing. He used to bleed and have skin all over. Uh, if I remember the story right, I think it was right before the Us Festival that him and Ozzy had gotten to an altercation. Ozzy punched him in the face and broke his nose or knocked him out of something. But I tell you, besides the M80 stuff, uh, you don't hear anything from Don Costa all these days. I mean, that guy's face has to be on a milk carton somewhere. He doesn't do anything in the music business. Uh, I haven't heard of anything from him since the M80 stuff and around the same time as the Ozzy incident. So if anybody knows what Don Costa is up to these days, let me know. I would love to know what he's doing. All right, let me see. We got this interview with Rachel Bolin. Matter of fact, this thing is like hot off the press. I just hung up with him right before I started to pre-record this show for tonight. So uh, we'll get that interview on, but first we'll do something off the brand new Skid Row EP. And uh, we'll, we'll, well, I'm not even going to talk about the EP and all about it, but, you know, we talked about that with Rachel. You hear how they have this thing planned and set up. But we'll get a song off of it. It's called The Kings of Demolition, and then we're going to go right to that interview.
Hey, Rachel, is that you? That's me, man. What's hey, happening? It's, it's Mike. How are you? Oh, doing well. How about yourself, dude? Hey, I can't complain. I'm talking to you. How bad can things be today? <laughs> Sorry I'm late, man. I had no idea it was today. That's, That's all right. You, you probably do 100 of these at a time. You can't keep track of them anymore. <laughs> I know. I usually write them down, man, but I don't know if it's not through the cracks so. Uh, it's all right. No big deal. I'm still here. And, and it is great to talk to you today. You know, being a fan for, it seems like, you know, almost 30 years now, if not better, you know, uh, it, it's great that you guys are still going at it and, and still putting out new music. And that's something that a lot of bands aren't doing anymore today. Right on, man. Longest job I ever held down. <laughs> not bad, right? You know, everybody talks about the good old days of the 80s. But a lot of times it really weren't that great, you know? <laughs> a lot of bad yeah. things that happened at the time. But, you know, it was a good time for music. But you guys have kept it going all these years. And, and you have a new record out. And I know it's an EP, but what made you decide to go like something, you know, shorter than a regular album after like seven years? Well, we, um, it was just, the idea kind of came up. And it's nothing really new. It seems a lot of bands are starting to do it. Um, the The main reason was we thought it was a really cool idea to, put out music on a steady basis with, with the, we're in the age of information overload there's so much stuff coming at you at all from all angles you know so we're like well, instead of instead of putting it out doing it traditionally let's just uh you know every six seven months put out another ep and keep a constant flow you know and, and that's the whole idea behind united world rebellion we're going to do three chapters and uh at the end of it make something special out of it you know a box set with extras and whatnot but it uh it really appealed to me when uh, the idea was brought up, and the fact that uh, the economy the way it is, instead of going and plunking down, you know, 15 bucks for a full-length record, you know, six, seven bucks for an EP, it kind of breaks up the cost a little bit, and at the end of the day, you'll have like a record and a half of stuff, you know, and um, I, I thought that that was a pretty cool way of looking at it as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's like you said, there's so much going on today. You don't know which way to turn your head anymore, like to keep up with what's happening. But yeah, yeah, you guys have always spent like at least a slave to the grind. You know, it was four years to the next record, and then you know it was a good seven years in between albums. So there was always a a good wait, and we always you know we expect that with Skid Row. You know, we're gonna get a good album. But I think today a lot of people just don't have the capacity to take in more than five or six songs. At least they don't want to anymore. It's like everybody's got such a short attention span today. Yeah, it seems like, and it's just it's no fault of their own. It's just there's like I said, there's just so much stuff coming out. There's so many bands releasing music video games, movies, it's just like everything is coming at you at once. You could watch, you know, TV anywhere you are at any given point. You can watch it from a toilet in an airport somewhere. And I speak from experience. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, true. So, you know, you got your smartphone. It's just you never really can get away from, uh, you know, any, some kind of information coming at you, be it music or whatever. It's just, uh, yeah, you know, so we figured to sneak in there when people have time to listen to, to you know, a half an hour's worth of music instead of an hour, you know? That's true. You know, I, I read a lot of little reviews so far online about the album, people that have gotten advanced copies of it and are talking about it, and they all keep saying it to return the form, you know, to the old Skid Row. Now, to me, I, I don't see that because I don't think you guys have ever repeated yourself from one album to the next, going back to the first record. And I think the Skid Row today, at least me musically, is, is a completely different band than the one that came out in 1986. Do you feel that, that this is like a return to form or it's just the next progression of... Because that's what I feel like it is. You know what? I, I People have been saying that, and I I take that as a huge compliment because we, you know, we accomplished so much uh, back then. And um, 
I think it's a, a bit of both. I'm, I'm not playing the fence here, but I think it's a bit of both. We we really made an effort to to focus in and remember, go back to our roots. And I know that's a cliche saying a lot of bands say it, but when Snake and I, before we started writing, we're like, okay, you know, we've had so much stuff outside of Skid Row going on, and it it, it seemed to influence some music. And, and we are the band that like to reinvent ourselves. And I think we have, in a way, of not like forgetting where we came from too with 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 this EP. It um I hear what people are saying. A lot of people are saying, Oh, this is where Slave to the Grind left off. And yeah, I think riff wise and uh you know, just that, that angst and aggression that's always been the common thread through all Skid Row's career, you know. I I don't know why, but we're in our forties and we still find something to get pissed off at, you know. So <laughs> but I, I I think that's all in the spirit of rock and roll, you know. And and um it I, I think we did succeed in staying true to our roots instead of getting too experimental like we did on the last record. But I, I think we, we're we not sounding dated. So I, I agree with both sides of that argument. Yeah, I, I think that's the most important thing for any band is not to sound dated. I mean, you know, you could pick up an Iron Maiden record, and they, they it's great. I love it. But they sound the same from album to album. Not much ever changes. They don't stray far from the formula. And, you know, in the 80s, that was a great thing because you wanted, you know, more of what you loved at the time. You know, 25 years later, you know, I mean, when Revolution Per Minute came out, I was like, it took me a little while to get into that. I was like, this really, I mean, they really went off the radar with this one. This is no different than Thick Skin or anything before that. But when you play it and you realize it's Skid Row, I mean, you get into it. I mean, did you guys intensely try to, like, do something different? Because I'm sure if all the years in the business, like you said, all those influences, they're going to come into you sooner or later and you want to experiment. Yeah, I mean, especially with RPM, we... uh we're like, let's just try whatever we write. Let's just do it. Let's not put any parameters on it. Let's just experiment, have fun with this. And if it works out, great. We're kings. And if it doesn't, you know, we're idiots. So, you know, some people love the record. Some people hate the record. Uh, I, it was a fun record to make. You know, we got to work again with Michael Wagner. And we just did stuff that no one would expect us to do. They expect a little punk influence here and there, but never like a country song or yeah. straight up like Celtic you know, workman song, and, and uh, so, you know, we did it, and, and a lot of people were just like, what the hell is this crap? Yeah, but, I, you know, a band has to experiment to grow, whether it's for good or bad or indifferent. A band has to experiment if you want to grow, and it is, that did break us away from trends that were seeping into our heads, you know, I mean, we're not 22 anymore, and just listening to stuff, it, it uh, you have your whole life to write your first couple records, you know, all that all that stuff. But then, as you know, you get busier and, and people start having families and stuff, you're listening more than you're creating. And that that's, you know, so you just you get all the the, the experimenting out and out there. And then it, it kind of gives you a clean slate to work with. That's so true. Did you ever feel like you, have you ever gotten into a rut in the band over the years where you just couldn't create or you just didn't feel the desire, you know, to do anything new? Oh, absolutely, man. I mean, you know, Snake and I write most of the stuff. Uh, it's not a Skid Row song until everyone puts their personality into it, but we do write most of the stuff. And there's been times where we've planned, you know, because we, we don't live in the same state anymore, so we've planned weekends where, yeah, okay, let's rent a hotel room in Nashville or in Chicago and just write. And we did it one year, and this is going back always, and uh, we did it one year, and we spent the whole weekend and did not come up with anything and that we'd have we 
everyone gets writer's block. Anyone sure. that says they don't is a liar, but it happens to everyone, and it's the same thing. I've talked to so many guys that were just like, man, it just it's so frustrating, and it makes you feel so friggin' worthless. And you're like, okay, I wrote this many songs. Why can't I write one right now? You know, and it just happens. And and so anyway, Snake and I got together the whole weekend. We didn't come up with one idea that either one of us liked. Yeah. And it was just very frustrating. And you have to kind of shake it off. It's like getting hurt while you're playing a game. You know, playing sports or something. You just gotta kind of shake it off and get back into it and and just go from there. I I have uh you know just fans write that write their own stuff that ask me all the time, do you ever get writer's block? And you do. It just it just comes out of nowhere, man. And it it's you know, it's a muscle and you really have to constantly work and and but it's still gonna creep in there every now and then. Uh, tell me about it. My muscles had writer's block for a long time. I gotta do something about that myself. It's it's getting <laughs> <laughs> But you, you find like some of your best songs sometimes they just come out of nowhere, like you just when you're not even expecting it and like the ones that you really you know, you like sometimes you come up with a riff and you just work it to death, but it just doesn't go anywhere either. And you know, oh, yeah. it's a moment. Oh yeah, absolutely. You, you know, you'll be online at the uh, supermarket or something, and you'll just be, you know, humming and like, oh wow, I got to remember this riff. I got to remember this riff. And I go out to the car and I'll sing it into my uh, iPhone, and you know, Snake and I will get together and work on it. Next thing you know, it's a song. It's like, wow, where the hell did that come from? When yeah. you sit down concentrate on stuff hard sometimes it just doesn't come out but then all of a sudden it's just like bam something just hits you right away i love that i love when that happens in the days before we had iphones and all this technology did you ever lose a riff before you had a chance to put it down somewhere oh uh, yeah man my biggest problem was you know i used to carry one of those micro cassette things yeah all the time and like i'd have a riff and i'd go reach for it in my car and i'm like oh no i left it at home you know so sometimes i would call my answer machine <laughs> and I'd, I'd hum it into the answer machine or, you know, and I'd get home and, <laughs> and i listen to it. And I was like, I don't understand one note. <laughs> so I, I hate when that would happen. And uh, I'd sleep with a pad next to my bed, too, in case i come up with lyrics while I'm sleeping. And so there'd be times where ah, I'll remember it in the morning and nah, never remember it. Yeah. yeah, that happens. You know, Rachel, you and Snake have been, like, you know, the backbone of this band since the beginning. And, you know, you're the core writing team of the outfit. Do you ever feel guarded sometimes like a new member comes into the band? I mean, even Scotty's been with the band almost since the beginning, too. But, I mean, yeah. do you ever feel like guarded, like where you don't want to let anybody else into the writing process? Or do you feel, you know, you have to as a band to let everybody contribute, you know, to feel uh, like they're a part of it? You know what? This is how, how we always worked. Uh, like, from the beginning of, of the band, whoever was in the band at the time. we The best idea wins, and that's not for Snake and I to decide. It's when you get into a rehearsal room. And you could see, I mean, Snake and I have brought ideas where we're like, man, this song is awesome, and we'll go in, and the other three guys will be playing it. And you could just tell body language and and just, you know, the excitement level of their playing and stuff like that. When you know guys for so long, it's just like, all right, what's up? And they're like, oh, man, not feeling it, dude. Yeah. We're just not feeling it. Sorry. And, you know, the best idea wins and gets used, and it's always been that way, and it still is. I mean, we don't feel uh, the need to, okay, dude, come on, come on in and write and this and that. But if someone has an idea and says, hey, when are you guys writing? We'd like to jump in on that. It's like, cool, come on up. You know, this is when we're doing it. Either send us some ideas or come on and sit in and whatever. And it's just, it's been a system that's always worked out well for us. Hey, if it, you know, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. That's the way, that's the way it exactly. should be. Exactly. 
And, exactly. And I know, like you were saying, with United World Rebellion Chapter One, you're gonna go like you know every six or so months with the, with a new chapter to complete the whole thing. Was this whole thing written in one shot, or do you, are you planning on going in and and you know writing each one as you go along? Yeah, no, we're writing each one as we go along. That's wow. how fresh we want to keep it. You know, we didn't want to have a bunch of stuff in the can so we could sit back for a year and a half or two years and say, all right, well this one's ready, let's do that now. We're we're doing we're writing and recording as we go. So and actually we're getting together on the uh, later this month, like around the 19th, I think, before we go to Mexico. We're um, we're going to be writing. Uh, we have a couple ideas, but we don't have any completed songs. So we want this to be completely fresh every time it comes out. That's going to be great. I mean, I know you guys are going out soon on tour. You're pretty much touring straight through to the end of the summer. I mean, that's that's pretty good in this day and age. Yeah, we we play a lot. That's why it took seven years between records. You know, we. We had to make a, a conscious effort to say, all right, we have to sit back and we have to stop touring and take some time off. You know, so we, Snake and I were writing quite a bit uh, on days off, but we never recorded anything. So we took some time off, we demoed it, you know, shopped it to uh, Megaforce, and they liked it. And, and um, we're like, okay, we have to do this album. We, we've got to turn down gigs. Because the gigs will just keep coming in and coming in and coming in, and we can play and play and play, and the next thing you know, or it's another year later and whatnot. So, um, yeah, this year's really busy. I mean, we're doing a lot of overseas shows that we haven't done in a while. Um, we're going, you know, we're we just got back from the UK and the Czech Republic, and we're going back to Europe in June, doing some more shows in the states, going back to Europe in October, it looks like, and we're also September we're going to. Um, Australia, we're going to Korea, and, you know, a ton of dates in the, the States. And we're at the point now where, like, okay, we have to leave time open to do a record because we want to get this out by October. And uh, so that that's our target date is Halloween to have a record out, the, the second chapter out by then. So we have to, you know, we have to pick and choose when we want to play at this point. Sure. You, you, you've always been a live band. That's like, you know, where you've made your bones and it's your bread and butter. I mean, after 20-something years of playing pretty much all over the world, is there one place that you guys haven't played yet that you really like to get to? I remember back in the 80s when you guys went over to Russia, that was like a major thing that, at that time, you know, for that Moscow Peace Festival. That was like, you know, yeah. I don't think anybody ever played there at that time. Yeah, I know. That was crazy. And it's funny because we, we've been back once to play Moscow, and it's a completely different place now. And we're going back in June. We're doing uh, three shows in Russia, one in Moscow, one in St. Petersburg, and one in Krasnodar. And, um we just played the Czech Republic, which we had never played in our career, and it was insane. It was it was absolutely awesome. Um, but the place that I want to go that we've never been, and I'm from Portuguese descent, is Portugal. We've never, ever played Portugal, which wow. is a regular stop for most bands, but we've yeah. never, ever played there. And, uh, you know, I really, really want to play there, uh, you know, at some point. I don't blame you. Yeah. Do you find, you know, I, I know, like, over in Europe, and especially in South America, hard rock and heavy metal, they, they live in and breathe it over there. Same in Japan. You know, what kind of trend do you hear in the U.S.? We, you know, we're with you today, but we'll dump you tomorrow if something else comes along. And I've always hated that about people. But I think, you know, hard rock and metal fans are more loyal than almost any other genre of music outside of country music. Uh, but do you see that too? Do you see different parts of the world where they just like, they still live and breathe it and they've never forgotten about it? Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Um you know, we're playing Sweden Rock Fest again, and the last time we played, we hadn't been over to Sweden in quite some time, and we're pulling up to this. I mean, this is thirty, thirty-five thousand people come to this show every year, and 
where people camp out, and we just see tons of people walking up, and I'm like, these people have ripped jeans and cowboy boots and leather jackets and Doc Martens and studs and mohawks and everything. I'm like, they're still living it, you know, and uh, it was a big eye-opener for us. I mean, we found it touring, but when we went to this festival, it was just like, wow, this is the real deal. These people aren't aren't just wearing this. They wear, you know, to come to this concert, they wear this every day. And it, it's it's awesome, man. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it is incredible when you see the clips. I'm like, this is what it used to be like. I don't know, you know. I know what happened, but I mean, it's just it's a shame that we don't keep it like that here because you know it's just a. It, I don't even want to get into it. I'll go on and on forever about talking about the way we play in this country with music. But you know, Rachel, you've come up through this business from the time like when you know the record company was king. There were big advances that you've seen the change in the industry over the last twenty something years. I mean, do you find anything about the business today? I mean, just the business aspect of better than it was back in the early eighties. Well, it, it it is a completely different business. It um thank you. It it's it's night and day. It, it you know, like you said, back you know, twenty five years ago record companies ran the record business and now it's it's you could do a lot of stuff yourself, which is hard work, but I think we found the perfect balance with Megaforce because they have their their resources and we have you know, being in the business as long as we have we have the knowledge and, and wisdom of what goes on and you know, we keep her pretty close to the ground to see how things are done nowadays, you know, because uh, we don't like to, uh, I call it subbing out. We don't like to sub stuff out a lot. We like to keep stuff in-house, and the people that work for us work strictly for us and, and um, on the Skid Row side of things. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's there, there's a lot of, lot of up, there's, a, there's an upside to the way things are done now. Uh, as opposed to back then, but that back then you had that big money behind you of, of the major labels, which is kind of gone nowadays for most bands. Um, but you also didn't make as much on the stuff that you created. So it, it's kind of a catch-22. But I think I prefer things the way they are now because you have so much control over everything you do. Like everything Skid Row is approved by Skid Row unless it's absolutely under the radar bootleg t-shirts or something like that sure. or boot, bootleg shows that we it would be impossible to find out about but everything that comes out about Skid Row whether it's um, you know stuff from the past or stuff now we sign off on yeah, that is important, I mean, because you control your own destiny today, and you own the rights to your own music, and you control what goes out and doesn't go out. So I guess in the end, that's that's a much better deal than having a record company just advance you so much money and then say, here you go, and, and then they kind of like, you know, dump you the next day. Or, did you find that when you first got signed to like your first major deal that they wanted to change the guys that you were before they signed you? Well, um, that was the good thing about Atlantic Records is they wanted us how we were. You know, we had another label that was interested in us that wanted to completely change us, that dumped all the songs except for 18 in life. And so they wanted a pop version of us, a really super pop, clean version where we weren't. We were just a bunch of dirtbags from New Jersey, you know, and it's just like, and we're like, we were so bummed that we might go with this label, but that was because people were making decisions for us. And then Atlantic Records came came in and said, listen, we want this band. We're going to, you know, it came down to a money thing, which wasn't our decision. We felt that Atlantic was the right choice for us right from the start. And, uh, you know, they came through, and they, they pretty much let the band be the band. When it came down to 
you know, album covers and stuff like that, they started flexing their muscle a bit. Like, their art department guy was just like, no, this picture sucks. This is the one we're going to use. And we weren't completely happy with it. It's funny because the first album, the back, was the front cover that Snake and I picked. That's the cover that we wanted. And oh, really? The front, cover, the front cover was actually the back. But the record company wanted it the other way around, <laughs> which is a fun bit, little nugget of wisdom there. Um, it, it, uh, yeah, so, the, you know, that kind of stuff came into play. And, and uh, you know, there there were upsides and downsides. Like, they, Snake and I did not want I Remember You on the album. We did not want a power ballad. We didn't want to fall in with a bunch of bands that were putting out power ballads. They, you know, they talked us into it. They were very persuasive and were like, all right. It, this is easier than arguing. Just put it out. I'm glad we did. They were right. We were wrong. <laughs> you know, ended up being one of our biggest songs. Exactly. You know, a lot of people always said, you know, when Slave to Grind came out, they didn't even recognize the band. They didn't even know it was the same band because the album, you know, music was so different than everything that came off the first Skid Row record. But you know, looking back on it now, to me, I say, well, that's nothing because you guys have done that with every, you know, every album that's come out. You've always, you know, moved on. That's a big thing. But do you remember the first band you were in? Before Skid Row, when you were a kid playing, and you said, hey, you know, we're going to take over the world. Oh, yeah. You know what's funny, dude, is I'm looking at my system. My first gig was on November 17, 1978. And I'm looking, the reason I remember that, the name of the band was Magic. Ah. <laughs> and the reason I remember that is my big sister got me a uh, a coffee mug, like this metal coffee mug that I keep all my business, like business cards that I get in it. And... um she had that inscribed for me, the date of my first gig, and it sits on my desk. And, wow. yeah, I remember it was like yesterday. We did mostly Kiss songs and uh, ACDC and, you know, a couple other weird songs in there just because we needed to fill it up. And, uh, yeah, I, I every band I was in, it's like, we're taking over the world. We're taking over the world. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And then um, right before Skid Row, I was in a band with Scotty Hill, and, uh, you know, we, we had a pretty cool thing going. We had a following built up in New Jersey. And, um, you know, met Snake. We started writing songs together, and he had a band. And we both kind of disbanded our bands, more or less, and um, put Skid Row together. Yeah, uh, Snake was in Steel Fortune back then. Yeah, Steel Fortune, right. Yeah, then, I got, um, seen those guys so many times. I got 100 bootlegs in them from Lamar <laughs> and all those other questions. That questions. is great. That's awesome. I was so impressed, man, because I... Um, the band I was in at the time when he was in Steel Fortune, I was in a band called Second Child, and it, um, we actually, they used to open for T.T. Quick at the Fountain Casino. Oh. And, and he was, he was going to L.A. Snake was going to L.A. I didn't know him, but he was going to L.A. And so we went up to see his, to see T.T. Quick and Steel Fortune was opening and we were going to, uh, talk to the owner about getting that slot, which we ended up getting. And, um, it was hilarious because, uh, Peace of Mind came out the day before I went to go see Steel Fortune. And the night I went to see Steel Fortune, one day they were doing The Trooper. <laughs> I was oh, like, wow. you've got to be kidding me, man. <laughs> no time I, guarantee, I guarantee if you told Snake to play The Trooper right now, he'd be able to play it note for note. <laughs> <laughs> I think they, those were the good times. You know, New Jersey had such a great scene back in the day. There were so many bands up and coming. It was just great, you know. I, I I look back at those days like my fondest memories because it was just really cool to hang out. You went to a club, you hung out the whole night, you watched every band play, you enjoyed it. Today it's like the clubs they want you in and out, you know. Buy two beers, see the band, and get out by eleven o'clock. It's that that whole camaraderie yeah. thing is missing today. That's the saddest part of it. 
Yeah, dude, I remember I'd be, you know, I lived down at Tom's River, so I'd be partying with my friends, and we'd be like, oh, man, get a get an aquarium. And we'd open it up. We'd see, like, Oblivion is playing at Lamar in Brooklyn. It's like, oh, they're not going to go on until 2. Cool, let's get in the car and go. We'd load up the car with beer and booze and head, head out to Brooklyn, you know, and uh, we'd get there and still have a half an hour before the headliner went on. That's right, yeah. <laughs> You weren't getting out of there before four yeah. in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. See, Oblivion, Exciter, all those metal bands that were eventually, I think, on Megaforce, you know? Yeah, that's right. But, uh, but they, yeah, they it was cool. Times. Yeah, I used to love those shows. I used to love going to just to see the waitresses, you know, <laughs> go see Dizzy and the rest of them. But other than yeah. that, it was good yeah. times, and I missed that. But, you know, Rachel, whatever happened to Matt Fallon? Is Matt, it, uh, well, after uh, we replaced him, uh, we... I, I ran into him a couple times, like Christmas shopping at a mall, but I, I honestly I don't know what he's up to these days. I haven't spoke to him in a while, so uh, I don't know whether Snake speaks to him or not. But uh, yeah, I haven't heard that name pop up in a while. Yeah, it's, it's been a bit because I know uh, Snake did this still fortune thing for for that charity a while back, and that wasn't a part of it. So I was like, I think he's probably missing an action after all these years. But the right, good news yeah. is that you guys are still here. Johnny's singing with you for a long time now. He is, you know, Skid Row, and the new EP is just phenomenal. I can't wait to hear parts or chapter, I should say, two and three. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Hey, Red Night Time. It was great talking today. The best of luck with the new album, and I can't wait for the rest of them. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it, brother. Anytime. Man. Take care, buddy. All right. See you.
from the gutter. That was Raw Power with State Oppression. And right before that, it was Skid Row with Rattlesnake Shake. And that was from their first demo tape with Matt Fallon on vocals. I think this is we were talking about Matt at the end over there. I get on his version of that song. And the new EP really is a rock-solid album. United World Rebellion, Chapter 1. And, you know, if you're a fan of Skid Row, you know that it could be anywhere from five to seven to almost eight years in between records. They're going to bang out three new EPs every six to eight months. So there's going to be a lot of Skid Row coming out in the next year or two. So keep your eye on that. I want to thank Rachel for calling me today and uh, having that interview. All right, we've still got Richie Weiss from Dust in about a half hour or so. I thought we'd do one more tune and then... uh. We uh, check in with Ken Pierce from PiercingWindow.com to find out what's going on in the world of heavy metal this week, at least in the Tri-State area anyway. All right, let's do what I can do for you right now. You know what? Let's do our demolition segment. Let's get that out of the way. We had the guys from Halloween on a couple of weeks ago, George Neal, Brian Thomas. Had a great time talking to them like always, and we were speaking of the other Halloween that was out at the time. That was the Italian band. And this week up for grabs is that group's first demo tape. So if you head over to the Heavy Metal Mayhem blog spot, you could download yourself a copy of it. And off that tape, here's the song Evil Power. Without 
Okay, that was Halloween, the Italian version, and they are this week's Demolition Segment artist. So head over to the Block Spot, like I said earlier, and download yourself a copy of that demo tape. All right, let's now let's check in with Mr. Kent Pierce from PiercingMetal.com on what's going on for the concert calendar in the New York City area this week. Kenny, how are you, my friend? Wow. Hey, Mike, I tell you, it, it really feels like I just called you. It really does. Oh, man, we are steamrolling into May. Holy crap, what a freaking uh, month has started already. But here we are again, and I'm just going to give you the, the lowdown on this mighty metal Mother's Day. So let's give a big huzzah to all of our mothers out there and uh, – and uh, remember the ones that are, are no longer with us just uh, for good measure because uh, you can't replace Ma. you got to love Ma. Anyway, uh, here's what we got going on for this week. There's not a really whole lot of stuff going on. Uh, nothing on the, on the docket tonight to my knowledge, but tomorrow some really interesting stuff uh, as Huey Lewis and the news will appear at Irving Plaza. Now I know what you're saying. Why tell the listeners about Huey Lewis and the news? Man, they were all over the radio and all over the – the, the video waves when uh, when that stuff was uh, first coming out, and you got to give them props for for such a successful career. Heck, I might even want to go to that show myself if I can get myself a ticket. Um, shooting over to Wednesday uh, to Thursday, you got Paramore over at Hammerstein Ballroom, and Paramore will find the band Kitten opening up for them. Now, Kitten is not the same as Kitty, so I don't know if we have some copyright infringement going on here with bands, but only time will tell. Friday evening is Kverler Tack. I, you know, you tease me about all the bands I see, and you say he can say all those things, and I can't. Uh, this one I can never get, Kverler Tack. So they are at the studio at Webster Hall. That should be an interesting show because they're bringing along the Cancer Bats, and there are going to be other bands that are not yet announced to my knowledge. Up at the Gramercy Theater, Rubik's Cube brings their classic 80s show to the Gramercy. That is always, always fun stuff. Uh, and the past few shows that they've had over at the Gramercy have had Dee Snyder popping in and doing some songs with them, guys from uh, Trickster, uh, um, who you might remember here uh, as, a, as a local band from Jersey that uh, did big, and they were on on the bill too with them, uh, you know, just like making an appearance and, and stuff. Where am I going with this? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> um, and that's gonna happen on Friday night. Uh, Saturday night is a busy, busy night, man. You got Turbo Negro over at Irving Plaza. Uh, I don't think they have really done too much touring over here, so worth seeing them. If you like what you hear, just look them up on uh, Spotify or uh, or Facebook somewhere. Uh, the band Kitten, who just opened up for Paramore, will be headlining a set at Santo's Party House on Saturday, while Kill Code and Annika perform together at the Gramercy Theater as part of a Gotham Rocks uh, production. Now, here's something that might wake up your old uh, hardcore Jones. The Super Bowl of Hardcore is at Webster Hall. And, man, I, I tell you, there are so many hardcore bands playing. Let me just run down what I've seen. Uh, here's who's playing that show. Uh, Judge, Breakdown, Bane, Black Train, Jack, Strife, District 9, Take Offense, Altercation, Old Firm, Casuals, Fire and Ice, Arabio, Downpresser and No One Rules. That's going to be a nice, long, hardcore show, just like the old days. And that starts at 1.30 p.m., so don't be late if you want to appreciate 
everything that's going on. And that, my friend, is all I have and all I can talk about this time. I don't think I missed anything. At least I hope I didn't. So remember, as always, come on to Facebook and find piercingmetal.com. Give our page a like so we can keep you uh, up to date on more of these things. Because like we always say on the program here, uh, stuff gets added and changed left and right. So we don't always get to it uh, on the call, you know. So uh, we don't want you to miss out anything or, or lose money on tickets and stuff that shows that got canceled. Also find our Twitter. It's uh, it's just Piercing Metal. You can follow me on Twitter. And also on uh, Instagram at Piercing Metal NYC. That's all I got, my brothers. I will talk to you next week. Have a great one. Bye. All right, Kenny. Thank you very much, buddy. And uh I tell you, Kenny's plugs are longer than his concert segment. And if you want me to send you a memo, this is a heavy metal show. We don't really care about Huey Lewis or Paramore. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I was a big Huey Lewis fan back in the day myself. I always enjoyed those guys. And they're still going at it today. All right, so let me see what we can do for you right now. All right, we got the interview with Richie Weiss and Dustin in a few minutes. But let's do some Warlord. This is brand new. I mean, these guys, Bill took it over the top of this record. He did a phenomenal job. Has a song called Thy Kingdom Come off the Holy Roman Empire.
Man, that is a great album. It's been a long way for that, but it's well worth it. If you haven't picked it up yet, I suggest that you go and do so. Great stuff. And they just played, uh, I believe, at the Kid Festival. There's some pretty good clips online of them doing, you know, some songs live. So definitely go and check that out. All right, let's get this interview I just did with Richie Wise on from Dust. Like I was saying earlier, Dust were an early heavy metal band from the, the late 60s. They started out around, put out two records, and then kind of disappeared. And the drummer, Marky Bell, became Marky Ramone and played with the Ramones. And Richie, he got into the to the business end of the music industry. And Kenny Aronson went on to play with way too many people to mention, but we do talk about that in the interview. So when you go to look back from the roots of heavy metal, it's blue cheer and definitely dust. Here's that interview with Richie. Hey, Richie, how are you? This is Mike. Hey, Mike. How you doing, bud? I'm doing great, man. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Oh, thank you very, very much. I love I love the uh, New York accent you got going on there. <laughs> you know, I, I'm from your hometown of Brooklyn, New York, so, you know, you can't get rid of that sometimes. I've been out here for in L.A. for 40 years, and uh, people say, yeah, you're from Brooklyn, huh? <laughs> yeah, you never lose that accent. It may go away a little bit, but there's always a part of it there. Absolutely. Brooklyn's always a part of you, no question That's about right. it. You can't help it. Well, listen, I, I can't tell you, I mean, it, it took 41 years to get those two albums out again to, to the fans, for the people to listen to. And I, I got to tell you, the CDs, they sound amazing because I remember buying those records in the used bin in 1979 at Titus Oak when I was a kid. And I could like, come up like five bucks, and I was like, why wow, these look heavy? And so I've had those albums since 1979, but to hear them on CD, they're just incredible, these songs. It's like listening to brand new music all over again. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm flattered. Thank you very much, man. That's really great coming from you. Uh, anytime, man. It's, you know, when you when you think about it, I mean, you know, Blue Che gets a lot of credit for being the first band to really be playing like that hard and heavy back in the late 60s, early 70s. And Dust kind of got pushed to the side and forgotten about. And I think these two albums are going to show people that, you know, you were right in there at the beginning of it. And you were kind of like the forefathers of a whole scene that came around you know, five, six, maybe ten years later on. But how did it feel at the time when you were writing this music? I mean, three guys from Brooklyn writing stuff like that in the late 60s, early 70s, they must have been staring at you like you had four heads. Well, i got to tell you, I wish that, well, maybe I don't wish. The, the reality was what we were doing was so organic. It was so real. There was absolutely no brain involved at all. I mean, we were just doing what we loved to do. The three of us, by the time Dust became just me, Kenny, and Mark, and we've given up on, we gave up on trying to have maybe another singer or another guitar player. <coughs> we went through different drummers. We went through a few bass players. But finally, around 69, I think, that was just me, uh, Mark, and Kenny. And uh, we were all so into the all the same stuff, man. We were into the British bands. And we lived and breathed those bands. Uh, I mean, the list is, is really long, and some might surprise you because, uh, you know, they weren't all Led Zeppelin, Cream, and Jimi Hendrix. I mean, we loved, uh, and I, I loved Jethro Tull and Proko Haram. I loved the Moody Blues. I loved anything British pretty much. And uh, when I started writing songs, I mean, I just wrote what came from my brain. I never really tried to write or do anything, and the band never really tried in any way to, to sort of copy anybody. When the three of us guys got together, the way we played 
we were so aggressive and so loud that I, I like to say that even when we were unplugged or even when when we played through minimum amplifiers, clubs used to want to throw us out because we were <laughs> so loud. It was just the nature of the three of us, our personalities. I mean, Kenny, most amazing bass player, and, and at that time he just let loose. No one told him that you're not supposed to play that many notes, you know? Yeah. And he played that many notes, and he played them amazingly. Mark was the most unbelievable drummer. It's interesting how he got famous and in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for a band where all he was doing was keeping time. Obviously, it's not easy keeping time that fast for that duration in a punk band like that. But you listen to his drumming, on, on, on especially on Heart Attack album. It's amazing. It yeah. really is, I think, one of the premier albums for, for a rock drummer. And I hope that some people hear him and realize what an amazing drummer he was. He was into Mitch Mitchell and, and Baker and uh, Bonham, of course. Every drummer was into Bonham. And we were just three of us. We got together. We played. I wrote most of the songs with my partner, Kenny Kerner, who I then started producing records with. And we just wrote. I never told Kenny what lyrics. He, he fit the lyrics perfectly to the riffs I was writing and the things I was writing. But who knew that suicide and learning to die and from a dry camel and stuff like that was sort of a forerunner to what later became metal. I mean, we didn't know. We were just doing what we loved to do. We thought of it as hard rock, and no one told us, because if you listen to the albums, obviously there's a big, diverse, you know, musical palette there. It's oh, not yeah. just one thing. It's not just one thing. But the thing was live, we were just one thing. And when we played live, we were just loud and aggressive. Like I, I like to say, all exhale, no inhale. <laughs> so the, the the album, the albums were because a lot of the groups back then did albums that weren't exactly like their live shows. They had uh, some in, in more interesting stuff. Or Cream used to put all kinds of Jack Bruce ditties on there and who the heck knows what they did and stuff that wasn't, you know, their forte, but they did it anyway. So we went ahead and did it, and Mark and Kenny never said, you know what, that's uh, thusly spoken or you know, stuff like that shouldn't be on the album. It's to this or that. No, because we all have the same palette. And, you know, if it's good enough for, for Procol Han to do or any band to do something slow, then we would do it too. So it was never any question about it. It just came from, I like to say, from the neck down. There was really no thought. We were, it was crazy. It was wonderful and crazy. And those albums show that. I mean, like you talked about Procolham a little bit, and, and some of your softer songs, I definitely hear that influence by Procolham in the music. But then, like, Suicide comes on, and like, I play today. And like, you know, you have a lot of kids that I would play for, and they were like, well, you know, there's a million things faster and heavier than that. I'm like, I'm like but this was 40 years ago. You don't realize how intense that music was at that time. There was nothing being played like that. And I think That's that originality right. and that free form that you guys had, I mean, as structured as the music can be, it was also unstructured. That's what made it so original. Like, you talk about the bass and the drums and the guitar work. I, today I played it, and it still boggles my mind that, you know, you know how bands forgot to play like that today so much where it's not like it used to be, you know? Hey, uh, Lord, I just got a text, no big deal. Hey, listen, so uh, I'm, I'm on YouTube, and I see this band called Red Fang, okay? And they're doing suicide. 
Wow. And it blew my mind because they said, there's a band from the early 70s, you know, from 40 years, whatever they said, Dust, and they did they did a cover of Suicide. And, of course, the guitars are blasting distorto and, you know, much more rock. The drummer doesn't come close to being able to do it, but what uh, Mark did on, on that. But it's like when I hear it, I go, yeah. I mean, obviously, 40 years ago, we didn't do that kind, th- those tones, that, that, that Metallica thing didn't exist. It wasn't yeah. in the world yet, you know? It wasn't, cell phones weren't in the world yet, you know? Tones didn't exist, certain things didn't exist. And so so obviously people will listen to it and, they'll, and, and they could obviously say, well, you know, that's not heavy. But it, for back then, I think it really was. And the album covers were crazy. I mean, you know, holy crap. And still yeah. there's something about From a Dry Camel that is just... Uh, there's something magic about that. I don't know what it is. I listen to it, and it's like uh, just the, the the vibe I get from it is I don't remember just creating that vibe. It was kind of really cool. What made you decide? I mean, you sit on these albums for so long. What made you decide now is the time to like you know put them back out there again and, and, and you know remaster them? Yeah. Well, I think the uh, you, you have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, Let's start with Mark becoming famous and becoming a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame guy. So here you got a, a story there with the Ramones. Uh, this guy, Mark Newman, who's now at Sony Legacy, was uh, doing a, a whole piece on the Ramones and Mark and Mark's history uh, and was aware of Dust. And when he went to Sony Legacy, he said, these albums have to be re-released. We have to we have to bring them up. He says, they're amazing. There's a great story there because not only, you know, is Mark famous, but Kenny Aronson has played with Billy Idol and Billy Squire and, and uh, Bob Dylan and Joan Jett and God Almighty. He's been, he toured with, with, with so many people, it's not even funny. And he's one of the premier bass players for the last 40 years uh, in bands. And then me, you know, I produced Kiss and, you know, had number one records with, with other acts and, 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 and Gladys Knight and the Pips, big hits and stuff. Yeah. So there's a story. Here's three guys that all went on to do different things. Kenny Kerner's, you know, like the big deal over at the Musicians Institute here in L.A. So here we are, four, four three guys in the band, four guys all together, and we're all doing stuff. So there's a story. It's not like the group broke up and where are they now? They all did stuff in music. Some more successful than others, but we all met him up. So Mark Newman thought there was definitely a, a big story here, and there is. I've done a ton of interviews uh, over the last uh, six weeks, and it's been incredibly exciting and fun. And people from all over the world are telling me they've heard the Dust albums, that my father had this album when I was a kid. And this is a guy telling me he grew up in Poland. Wow. So there were little bits here and there. The group, remember, never became a national thing. It was very small. We were on a very, we were on a pop label, a very bubblegummy label called uh, Buddha Kama Sutra. They didn't have our kind of thing going on. We we had a manager. Unfortunately, Kenny relinquished the reins to another guy because the guy got us this record deal with Kama Sutra, and we figured a record deal is a record deal. What the heck? And, uh, I mean, sure, we wanted to be on Atlantic or A&M or Warners or something, but uh, it was what it was, and we went in and recorded. We never really thought much about it, just like we didn't think much about, uh, we didn't really 
uh, intellectualize the music. We didn't intellectualize what we were doing. And uh, after the first album, you know, things got better and we got some good gigs and we, we played around, but mostly the east. We never got out west. We never got west of the Mississippi River. So it was kind of a small little thing, but people here and there would discover it. And Mark, when he was on tour with the Ramones or Kenny was out there with another act, he says everywhere they went, there was always like one person, two persons, you know, that yeah. said, man, could you autograph this Dust album for me? Could you? I have. I love dust. So it's always been this little, little tiny thing, but it never died. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it sure. Was, it was just there was always a little flower, you know, coming up from 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 the ground, little as it might be. And now maybe there's going to be more excitement. I mean, I just looked at CD Universe, and the dust album is like number thirteen or something, fifteen or something for the week. CD that, that's incredible. Who the, who the hell knows? I mean, God, it's 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 bizarre. It's flattering. It's wonderful, and it's it's uh, it's really something that I just uh, I, I, I'm just so happy about it. No ego about it. No, look what we did. Blah blah blah. It's nothing like that, man. I was 20 and 21 years old when that when when we made those records, and I'm a lot older than that now. You know? <laughs> yeah. and so I, I don't look back and say, ah, oh, I was great, I was this and that. No, we were three guys that did from the heart what we believed in. And obviously years later, other people uh, believed in that same thing and became very famous doing it. We, we, I think we did some stuff early that might be looked on as pretty cool. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you know, the band had a couple of, you know, a lifespan of a few years back then, but you've been in the music business, you know, your whole entire life. You went from, you know, one end to the other with the producer. I know, like you said, you've worked with Gladys Knight, Kiss. You also worked with The Stories, Badfinger, uh, Survivor. I can't name all the bands that you've worked with over the years. Being on the other end of the spectrum, like, you know, on the business end of it, where, you know, the musician end of it, how different is it? I mean, because, you know, you always hear a lot of bands complaining about the record labels industry. You also did A&R work for Scotty Brothers for a while. Yeah. I mean, you hear bands always complain, like the record labels, they, they, they sign them, and then they want to change them after they sign. They sign a band for playing music one way, but then they want to change them into whatever's popular at the time. How did you feel as a musician and also being like, you know, an executive on the other end of the, you know, because you kind of did both sides of it. I did both sides of it, and uh, I could say that... Uh, it, it, it's it's a long answer. I'm giving long answers, but this is That's a pretty okay. long answer. This is a pretty long answer. The reality is that uh, I never liked the music business because the business of music uh, for many people, for many uh, people out there, it's not music. It's It's a commodity. It's something that has to be treated no different than the marketing of uh, a new toilet paper. Uh, so a lot of the a lot of the the love, a lot of the passion that hopefully most musicians have, otherwise they shouldn't be doing it. A lot of that, the minute you get involved with the business side of it, a lot of that is is trampled on, and a lot of that is is meets uh, a wall of a, a whole different attitude about what you're doing and why you're doing it. I remember when we produced uh, Brother Louie, uh, and this was 
1973, Kenny and I produced Brother Louie, which was the number one record for stories. And I remember when we we got presented our gold record, that there were it was a presentation, there were a number of people present. And there were people, and I was a young guy, I'm 22 years old, I know nothing about the music business, all I know is I like being in the studio, I love being in the studio, and I made this record that became a number one record. And here I'm getting presented a gold record and still taking the subway home, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But in any in any event, uh, there's people there, and they were all being congratulated for the record. Now, I made this record. Uh, stories were, more, were, were not the band... I used them as session people for a group called for a group called Exuma. We were doing this song regularly for a group called Exuma. I brought stories into play for me, play on my session. Uh, Ian Lloyd laid down a reference vocal to show the singer in Exuma how to sing the song. When we heard what Ian did, we all got blown away, obviously, and thought it was amazing. And then we finished it up, of course, with stories, and it became a stories record and number one record. But yeah. I'm at this party, and there's all these people and they're all congratulating each other, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm realizing, you know who it is? It's sales guys. It's radio station guys. <laughs> it's promotion guys. It's all these other people that make the hit record, not just the musical act, not just the producer, but a whole team of people. And they were congratulating themselves. The guy came up to me, and I remember he said, man, I was the first guy to play this record, man. I flipped out when I heard it. And, I, you know, whatever market he was in, Memphis, Tennessee, who gives a fuck, whatever market he was in, you know? It doesn't yeah. matter. But I realized back then that a lot of people are involved when there's success. Uh, the artists, the uh, if the artists are real and the artists are pure, that's sometimes very difficult to fathom. And if you have a good crew around you and good music people around you, all the decisions are made are made with that music that you're making front and center. That's the most important thing. And they don't want to do any promotions or publicity or things that compromise what you're trying to do. If that's it, that's a beautiful thing. And it still is a fight. And still most artists will complain, but many of them don't realize, and I saw both sides of it, many of them don't realize the opportunities that they're given. Uh, record companies, back in the good old days, uh, were, were, for the proper acts, they were banks. Uh, you know, B-A-N-K-S, they had the money yeah. to promote the record, to to put the record in end caps and record stores and have banners flying and, and, and have promotion guys working it to radio like nonstop and then forcing, trying to force the issue and have people play it. And uh, the acts are pretty much unaware of all of that. But saying all of that, uh, I see both sides of it and both sides are, are very right. And it takes a good combination, like I said, when it's done right, there's not a lot of sacrifice in the music. There's not a lot of compromise in the message. But there will always be a certain amount of stuff that goes on that a group will never like, and a record company will always have a lot of stuff going on that they don't like coming from the group and the group's yeah. manager because uh, everybody's trying to 
hopefully have the same goal in mind, but it's not as it's it's not simple. It's business. It's complicated. There's lots of politics. Uh, the business. Uh, the business in the 70s was was growing, growing, growing. Music business was a third-class citizen. It was a it was a third-world country. Movie business was king. TV was second. Music business was a little pimple. Then all of a sudden, in the mid-70s, records started selling huge, huge numbers. You got to remember back in the when the Beatles were around, Sgt. Pepper, you know, one of the the greatest records ever made, only sold at that time about two and a half million copies. And it took probably a few years to do that. Yeah. Think about that. Think uh-huh. about that. You know, all of a sudden in the mid-70s, you have Saturday Night Fever. You have Boston. You have Frampton Comes Alive. You have records selling 15 million. It got big. And when it got big like that, all of a sudden, the record companies were just rolling in money and limousines and drugs and all kinds of shit like that. It was a great time. A lot of the acts didn't realize it. Uh, That music business is gone. What I lived through doesn't exist anymore. It's a different world. So it, it differs a lot. Being in a band, playing music differs a lot from the record company perspective. But when it's done right, when you have great music people that are working on it, I mean, you, you could read like the, the big fight that, that that ensued when Clive Davis just wrote his book and was talking yeah. about Kelly Clarkson and all that bullshit. That, you know, she says it one way, he says it another way, you know. In the meantime, they sold millions of records and everybody's bitching. It's incredible. That's, yeah, that's it's, just the name of the game, my man. That's the name of the yeah, game. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, did you see the changes coming in the industry? Because, you know, the rec- I mean, half the record company actually had 20 years ago are gone. Only a few managers survive, and some of them are just barely hanging on. It's a whole different right, business right. model today. But did you see coming, you know, over the, over the last decade or so with the, the Internet and the I iTunes? Was, downloading? I was, yeah, I left the business. There were a few things that were happening all at once. I, I left the music business at the turn of the century. I've been out of it now for 13 years, okay? I spent 30 years in it, okay? It, what was changing was I, w- I was I was there when they were still talking about Napster and how uh, downloading would affect it. Nobody knew. No one had a clue that one day people's music would be a chip, not a not t- not necessarily a piece of trucked in product uh, the, I was there when that was all transitioning uh, no one really knew how to adjust to it I was also there when recording technology was changing from uh, analog to digital when records would be made on computers and anybody could make records at home and all that yeah. it all changed it wasn't the world that I lived on I loved I loved the big analog two inch tape fill it up with stuff and have a ball doing it. And uh, that was the world that, 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 that I grew up in. As that changed, so did the music business. Uh, and the business today, uh, I couldn't tell you anything about it. I know nothing about it. I really have. I made a decision when I left it in the year 2000, uh, 2000 2001. When I left, I decided that's going to be it for me. Uh, my passion was gone. 
because all I was about was passion. I loved making music. Yeah. I loved being in the studio. I loved being in a band. I left that when I was very early, but I my instrument then became the recording studio, and I was fortunate enough to produce about 70 albums and been involved with a lot of lot of music, TV, movies, uh uh, albums, bands, singers, all kinds of stuff. Stuff I loved, stuff I hated, stuff I did to just to do it. Uh, but it was a, it was phenomenal the fact that I was able to make a living in something that I loved doing. It, I, you know, was it always wonderful and great? Of course not. Nothing is. It's a music business, a roller coaster. But uh, I got to tell you that. Uh, when the passion left me, when I said I can't do this anymore, uh, then it, it, that was it for me. However, I still listen super loud to the music that I will always call Richie's classical music. Okay. You know, like yeah. I like to say, if you're in an orchestra and you play the, uh, if you play the flute in an orchestra, or you play a violin or a cello, and you're playing the classics that you love from a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, three hundred years ago, you don't say to yourself, "I'm playing oldies." That's well, right. <laughs> when I when I play Jimi Hendrix, when I play when I play all the shit that I listen to, which is all the stuff from the late '60s, early '70s, that's my classical music, and it will never be old to me. It'll always be current, and I love it. And I still go crazy when I hear something like Axis Boulder's Love. Yeah, it blows me away, and I have tons of that. There's so much music that I love, and I and and I, you know, thanks to computers, have I have every single record that I've ever listened to. So, uh, it's a beautiful thing, and that's what I live, and I love it. I'm, I'm so glad I do have that. It really, it really is. You know, I don't think there's any art form that touches anybody, people more than music. I mean, you can look at a painting and 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 be amazed and love it, a sculpture. But there's something about music that just cuts right through every part of your body, especially when it's good music and it's something that you enjoy. I don't care what genre it is. I don't care what kind of song it is. There's just something about music that it's the cornerstone of my life and I think many people, but yet, like you said, it's the most underappreciated art form in the risk because for some reason, like you, I think they people consider it more of a commodity than an art form, and it's a, pure, it's a true and pure art form. Well, you know, I, I, I obviously I agree with Hundred percent. The thing is this, though, it's not just music. I'm currently reading about Jack Kerouac, and uh, back in the in the late '40s and '50s, uh, it was literature that did a lot. Now they listened to a lot of jazz and all that, in effect. Yeah. But literature touched people, and these writers touched people a lot. Uh, music might not be the only thing. I think literature could do it. I think art could do it. But you know what's interesting? Uh, I've watched, there's a scene in the movie Lincoln. Daniel Day-Lewis is from another planet. He's so great. But yeah. there's a scene where, where he is telling his cabinet why he has to, why he has to have this 13th Amendment passed in two weeks. And there's the scene, and he goes through his the Lincoln's thought process. I've watched that scene uh, ten times, and I'm just blown away by it. I'm blown away by the history. I'm blown away by his interpretation. I'm blown away by his acting, okay? Ten times, okay? Yeah. I've listened to, I've listened to Close to the Edge by Yes 
a thousand times. Okay, a thousand times. So for me, how could anybody read a book a thousand times? Or even a paragraph. Well, you know what? People read things over and over and memorize, and they know it with their heart. But music, and I will, before I die, listen to Close to the Edge another 500 times. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Music, I I mean, I'm sure you've listened to... When I get on this kick, I will listen to an album in my car over and over and over and over and over again until I'm sick of it for a month. Then I'll listen to it two years later and do the same thing because I never get to, It's there again for me. It yeah. lives for me forever, and it affects me the same way. It's so true, man. I couldn't agree with you anymore. I mean, that's how I feel about, about all of that in general. You know, Richard, I'm not going to keep you much longer today, but I, I just got one more question I have to ask you. I mean, you know, Talk about being in the studio. You were the man behind the first two Kiss records, and you know, for diehard Kiss fans, those are two great, two great albums over there. The first two records. What was it like working with them? It was Gene Simmons the same back then as his, you know as he comes off today? Yes. Trying to be kind, you know. Gene, no, Gene and Paul were, and I always like to tell people because in all the interviews I've done, of course, Kiss comes up. Yeah, and I'm glad to talk about it. The uh, they were the most focused band. The most, I always say they were like a horse with blinders on. They were going in one direction and one direction only, and that was to the very top of the heap. They were always focused to be super successful. So every decision that was made, everything they did, was kiss, kiss, kiss. This is what kiss is. This is what we are. This is where we're going. This is what the makeup will be. This is what the clothing will be. This is what the stage show will be. We're not paying, playing second fiddle to anybody. And with that focus, that success came. They deserved success because they were massively focused. They were, Paul and Gene were very, very talented. Uh, and uh, I got to say that... Uh, did I know that they would be successful like that? Probably yes. I knew it because I knew that they were not going to settle for anything less than super success. They talked about it early on, and that was their game plan, and they followed that game plan. So they were easy to work with. They were pleasant. First album was a gem. Second album was a little fucked up because of we were. I was moving to California. We did it in a number of different studios. There was, it was we didn't really know what was going down. But that first album was uh, was was truly uh, a pleasure to do. Pleasure. Well, I'm glad that you did them. And is there any chance? I know you retired from the business. Is there any chance that you, Kenny and Mark, might ever get together? To do one or two shows, offshoot somewhere, small clubs, intimate settings, anything? I would say Kenny and Mark would probably do something, but they'd have to find a guitar player and singer. <laughs> then it doesn't work. <laughs> Not for me. I yeah. haven't picked up. I haven't, you know, I haven't picked up that uh, that bat and ball in a long time. I think. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you gave us all you gave us over the years, Rich. Especially those two great Dust records. And I, like I said, I appreciate you talking to me today. And the best of luck and I'm glad a whole new generation is going to discover this music. Oh, hey, 
that's really just great. I'm just so pleased and flattered by the whole thing. I really, you know, Mike, I want to thank you so much, man. It was great talking to you, and you're you're a great guy, and you've got a great sense and, and an understanding of, of, of stuff. Uh, thank you, Rich. I appreciate that. And the best of luck with everything, and, and enjoy your retirement, all right? All right. Thank you, my man. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.